Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you haven't heard, it's a good idea to fit probiotics into your daily routine. Fortunately, Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls make that so easy. These adorable little pearls couldn't be easier to take, and they support both digestive and vaginal health, all because of the probiotics. There are actually one billion active cultures protecting against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort, all in one tiny little pearl. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com. On this episode of Newt's World, I'm particularly excited because my guest is one of the most admired athletes, champion golfer, philanthropist, and by the way, somebody who's helped a lot of Republicans, the Golden Bear, Jack Nicklaus, the winner of 120 professional tournaments worldwide, including 73 PGA Tour events and a record 18 major championships over a 25-year span. Those majors include six Masters, five PGA Championships, four U.S. Open Championships, three British Opens. And amazingly, he won at least two PGA Tour events in 17 consecutive seasons from 1962 to 1978. In 1962, his first tour win was also his first U.S. Open title, and he put on his last green jacket in 1986. As a historian, I'm always interested in how people begin their journey to greatness, and I've listened to Jack talk in one of those fascinating evenings. We had two Republican golfers of some renown in Speaker John Boehner and the Senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, who is always golfing with Trump, and Jack Nicklaus, and the three of them talked, and it was amazing to listen to the conversation. So I promptly begged Jack to join us and talk with us about what's going on. It's a great privilege for any of us who've ever tried to golf to have a chance. So Jack, thank you for joining me. 
And I really want to just start with talking about your life, but I want to start with a quote from you. You said, quote, golf was my vehicle to competition, and competition is what I like. And I'm just curious, what taught you to love competition? I don't know. I think from an early age, my dad was a good athlete. He played four sports in high school, started the golf team at South High in Columbus and played football, basketball, baseball, played football, basketball, baseball at Ohio State. On the weekends, he went down to Portsmouth and played under an assumed name for the Portsmouth Spartans, which are now the Detroit Lions. So he was competitive, and I think that church went over to me. And everything that we did, we competed. He'd say, oh, come on, I'll race you to the movie theater. Or I bet I can kick the ball further than you can. Or I can throw that ball farther than you can. You know, he constantly egged me on for competition. And, you know, as a result, I enjoyed that. I loved it. My dad was not only my father, but he was my best friend. And we spent a lot of time together. He introduced me to all sports. He introduced me to everything, actually, more than sports. And I guess that competitive nature just came from there and continued. You said one time, my real competition was me. What did you mean by that? Well, in the game of golf, you really can't control what your opponent is doing. I mean, I don't care whether it was Arnold Palmer or Gary Player or Tom Watson, whomever it was. I couldn't control their game. The only game I could control was myself. So I had to play and compete against myself to make sure that I played my best. If I screwed up, then I wasn't going to be in contention. So I had to compete against myself to make sure I was giving it my best shot. Do you think in that sense golf is particularly focused on sort of self-control and self-awareness? It has to be. You've got to be aware of what you're doing all the time, and you have to have good self-control. If you don't have it, you know, it's bye-bye down the road. You're not any good. You know, as a Georgian, I was intrigued with the fact that you reference Bobby Jones as an influence on both you and your father. How did Bobby Jones influence you? Well, he was my dad's idol. My dad had watched him win the U.S. Open at Scioto in Columbus when he was a kid. And he'd always been in my dad's vision. And when I qualified for the National Amateur for the first time, I was 15 years old. I was playing in Richmond, Virginia. And Bob Jones came out to that match and was a speaker that night. And he introduced himself on the 18th green. I'd hit a ball into the 18th green. And he called me over, and I didn't know what Bob Jones looked like or anything else. He says, young man, I've been here for you know, three hours. And he says, I've only seen three people reach the screen in two. And you're one of them. And so he says, I'm Bob Jones. I said, oh, Mr. Jones. So anyway, he spoke that night at the banquet. After the banquet was over, he was walking with two canes at the time. And he came up to me and he says, he said, you know, I'm going to come out and watch you play a little bit tomorrow. Bob Jones is going to come out and watch me, 15-year-old kid in my first national amateur. Well, I kept looking for him all day. And on the 10th hole, all of a sudden, down the fairway comes Bob Jones. At the end of 10 holes, I was one up on a fellow named Bob Gardner, who was later a Walker Cup and Eisenhower Trophy, good player. And anyway, Bob Jones came, and I immediately went bogey, bogey, double bogey. He turned to my dad, and he says, Charlie, I don't think I'm doing Jack any good. So he got out of there. I got back to even, but ended up losing the match. But anyway, that sort of developed a start of a relationship. And then Jones came a couple other times to events I was at. And then when I first qualified for the Masters, when I was 19, there was a little note in my locker inviting my father and me down to his cottage to talk. And that little note was there every year. We went down every year. We got a lot of wisdom from him. 
taught me a lot of things about life and what I needed to do and how I needed to prepare myself and how to be responsible for my own game and not keep running back to my teacher and all those kind of things. And so, you know, he was a great influence on my life and my father's. When you look back on his record, I realize he played before you would have watched him. But what's your sense of how relatively good he was? Because at least from a Georgia perspective, of course, he's a legend. Do you think at his peak, he would have been competitive in the modern PGA? Oh, absolutely. He had a gorgeous golf swing. He obviously had a great attitude and competitive attitude. He had a set of golf clubs that they all played them all very well, except for one club, his four iron. And after he got done playing, they started measuring swing weights and things with clubs. He had one club in his bag that was out of kilter. All the others were a perfect symmetry, except for his four iron. That's what he found that out. So, you know, he had a great feel for what to do and how to do it. And he would have been a champion today, the same as he was in the 20s and 30s when he won. He's a pretty special man. Well, he's, of course, a huge impact in Georgia. And I think, and at Augusta, there's a certain kind of spirit of Bobby Jones, which permeates Augusta National. Now, when did you actually take up golf? I was 10 years old, and my father broke his ankle. I thought he sprained it when I was about seven. And he had, ended up having three operations on it. He had to fuse his ankle. Doctor told me, he says, Charlie, he says, you better take up something that you can walk, otherwise you're going to be in a wheelchair. And he said, he said, well, I played golf as a kid. He says, well, maybe you ought to take up golf. So he couldn't make a game with anybody because he couldn't walk very far. So he took me along. I carried the bag. He would go play a hole. He'd sit down and rest. We'd play another hole. We'd sit down and rest. While he was resting, I would go chip and putt and fool around and so forth. That was the same year, 1950, that Jack Grout came to Scioto. And Jack Grout was my lifelong teacher. Well, anyway, he says, would you like to learn how to play? And I said, of course. And so he turned me over to Jack Grout. And Jack Grout got me started. And it was my dad breaking his ankles, how I started playing golf. Do you think having the right teacher who got you from the very beginning into the right habits was a key to your ability to be such a dominant player? Well, I don't think that it's so important that a teacher be a great player or be a great teacher. I think what he has to have is a great feeling of having to care about his pupil. And Jack Grout cared about me. As I started hitting shots as golf clinics, he'd say, Jackie boy, he says, come out here and show these kids how to hit a hook. Show them how to hit a slice. Show them how to hit the ball up in the air. He used me as his example. And I'd only been playing, you know, a couple of weeks. And so it made me feel good. And he kept doing that. I remember my dad was concerned about how many balls I was hitting because the bill from Scioto came home with pretty, pretty high for golf balls. Well, that stopped. Less than charge. Jack Grout, beyond the time I was 10 years old, never charged me a penny for anything. He knew that I had a talent. And he wanted to be part of helping me develop it. And he was a great guy, but he taught me how to be responsible for my own game. He taught me how to control myself, the kind of attitude I should have. And he grew up as an assistant pro in Fort Worth at Glen Garden, where Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson were both juniors. And so he knew what was going on. He'd been around it before. He played the tour for a while, and he was just a nice man. I remember when he got into his late 70s, before he passed away, he'd call me and he'd say, Jackie boy, he says, you coming out here today? I said, well, if you want me to, Jay Grout, you want me to come out? He says, yeah, why don't you come out and we'll have lunch and we'll get some balls. 
And I say, okay, we could do that. So we go out and have lunch. We go out and hit balls. He may never say a word to me about my golf game. We talked about everything. He just wanted to be part of what I was doing. And I wanted to be part of what he did. He was like a second father to me, and he was just great. I don't care how good you are. There are periods in golf when you get frustrated, when something either isn't working or whatever. When you were younger, I mean, you're starting out at a very early age. How did you deal with the frustration when it just wasn't quite working? Well, my father helped me with that, too. Remember when I was 11 years old, we were playing at Sayota, the 15th hole. And I hit a really good drive, and I had an 8-iron into the green. And I hit the 8-iron in the bunker, and I threw the club, and the club almost reached the bunker, too. And he looked at me, and he says, we'll go pick the club up, we'll go pick the golf ball up, and we'll go back to the clubhouse because you're done playing today. As a matter of fact, you're done, period, unless you can learn not to do that again. I said, oh, okay. I said, that's a pretty good lesson. First of all, control your temper, control your own actions. And I did the same thing with my oldest boy. When Jackie was 11, when I won the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, we went to Spyglass. And he hit it down the first hole, hit a few bad shots, threw a club, mad, so forth. I said, okay, go pick him up. Let's walk back to the clubhouse. We left, done playing. It worked magically. My dad was not stupid. <laughs> he knew exactly what to do to get me to do the right thing. So that was part of it. Then I learned as I went along that, you know, I saw how these other guys did stupid things. And I just tried, you know, model myself after not being stupid. It's ah, a great line. Uh, try not to be stupid while you're doing this. <laughs> so I'm curious, there must have been moments when something that had been working started to not work, and you had to sort of think your way through it and adjust. I mean, did you have those kind of occasions during your career? Everybody has them, and you just go back to fundamentals. I would quite often in a tournament, if I start hitting the ball poorly, I'd say, okay, let's check my stance. Let's check my head position. Let's check my ball position. I could check that fairly easily without hitting a golf ball. I'd get to a hole that didn't have a lot of trouble on it. I'd say, okay, now let's check a couple other things in the swing. And I'd play a couple of shots on that hole, even though it was in the tournament, to make sure that I knew what I was doing. I'd say, ah, I got it. And then I'd go on and finish my round. But if you can't do that on the golf course, you know, pretty soon a lot of guys will start making mistakes. And then pretty soon, you've seen it in Congress. I mean, they make a mistake and then they multiply their mistakes. You don't need to do that. So I learned to control myself, learned how to manage myself, learned how to teach myself on the golf course. And you know, as Bob Jones said to me, he said, you know, I used to run back to Stuart Maiden, who was his teacher. And he said, I had my seven lean years. So he said, until I learned to control myself, manage myself, and be responsible for my own game. And when I did that, then I became a golfer. And I think Jack Grout and obviously heard that somewhere. And I'd heard it from Bob Jones, so we went ahead and we followed that model, and I thought it was a good model. That's interesting. You know, when I think about the pressure you must have been under in some of these major events, it would be very easy to suddenly have something start to go wrong and not be able to recover. And you've got to be able to recover literally between two strokes. Well, you try to. It might take you two or three to get it back, but I was always able to figure it out, get it back, because I was responsible. I mean, some of these guys, you know, today they have teachers that are out of the practice team with them before they play. 
and they watch her at every shot. They talk about all this. I would drive me crazy. And so I didn't want that. I had to figure it out myself. Jay Grout, he was there a lot of tournaments, but he never once had a foot on the practice team. And I appreciated that because he knew that I had to figure it out. If I had a question or something, and I want to say, I'd walk back to Jack and say, Jay Grout, I said, I can't figure this out. And he said, check your head position. He wouldn't tell me what to do. He'd say, check that. Or check your left foot. He'd say something. And I'd go back, check it. Usually it was the right thing. And then I would be able to move on. And that didn't happen very often, but every once in a while it did. And of course, then the next time something like that happened, I remembered what he'd said. And I didn't have to go back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I was a little surprised in getting ready to talk with you and looking at your life's experiences. You know, some people, like a Tiger Woods, from a very early age are totally focused on golf, and that's really, I think, the only track that they're on. You really had a period, though, when you were young, where you were a very successful insurance agent, and you'd actually been named Junior Agent of the Month for the agency. You were making a bunch of money. So you had a real break point where you had to sort of give up what could have been a pretty darn good financial career in order to pursue golf. Was that a difficult decision? Well, not really. This is 1961, and I was making a little over 30000 a year selling insurance. That's a lot of money there. That translates into you know, probably close to $300,000 today. And as a 21-year-old, I think that's pretty good. But I really wanted to be the best I could be at playing golf. And the only way I could be the best I could be was to play against the best. And so I talked to my wife. We had a first child in 1961. She says, go for what you want to do in your life. And I said, okay. So I turned pro because I wanted to compete against the best because that's the only way I could get there. And it was obviously the right choice for me. Now, I was out. I remember after about three tournaments, there was an article written in San Francisco about this young kid that's coming out on the tour. And they asked me how much I thought I could make. I said, oh, if I did $30,000, I thought I'd probably do pretty well. And they said, the older guys, look at this cocky young kid coming out. Thinks he can come out here and just make $30,000 like it was falling off a log. Well, I did a little better than that. I ended up making about 117 my first year. So, you know, I surpassed what I wanted, but I kept always trying to climb a mountain. I did that all my life. I always felt like if I got this far, I ought to be able to get this far. If I get this far, I ought to be able to go, go this far. And you keep working up that mountain. I kept climbing that mountain until I was probably, oh, I don't know, my mid-40s, I suppose, that all of a sudden, you know, I sort of fell off the other side, but that's all right. You know, it's interesting that you have this constant self-awareness of improving, that you apparently spent a large part of your life consciously thinking about how can I do better? How can I get this thing to work? And yet I remember you mentioned at the dinner event I was at that you'd won a major as an amateur, which they don't count as among your majors, or you'd have had 19. Can you briefly share that? I won two national amateurs, which would have given me 20. And so they took those away. Maybe after I'd been a pro for maybe 10, 15 years, all of a sudden they decided the national amateur wasn't a major championship anymore. Well, it was all right with me because Tiger won three of them. So <laughs> it didn't bother me that much. Yeah, we lost those, but that, it, it wasn't a big deal. It was all part of growing up and, and being part of it. And I guess the professional majors today is what people count. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I did not know this story that you actually competed with Bob Jones' son in an amateur. And the story is that he called his dad and said, why don't you come watch? And when his dad learned who he was going to play against, he said, in effect, well, that would be a really short match. Now, I'm told that you have a better way of telling that story. Bob Jones, the third, 
he called his dad and says, hey, dad, I qualified for the national amateur. Can you come out and watch me? And he says, well, who are you playing in the first round? He says, I'm playing some young kid named Nicholas. He said, well, he says, I've seen Mr. Nicholas play. He says, I'm not going to come out and watch you play 13 holes. <laughs> and that's what we played. I beat him six and five. That's wild. But that's right. I enjoyed being son. He's a nice man. When you were first introduced to Coach Grout, as I understand it, he has six fundamentals that he coached you on. And I think that probably led to one of your first books on how you play golf. Jack was very much on fundamentals, being able to understand your stance, your posture, your head position, your balance, your rhythm, playing from the ground up. I mean, those are probably basic things that he taught. I had the opportunity the other night when we were with you to also meet Barbara for the first time. And I'm curious, I mean, she obviously is a hugely important part of your life. And she was a, just a great hostess the other evening. When did you first meet her? Well, I met her her first week in college. The girl I was dating introduced us. I walked Barbara off to a class, and we'd already decided we were going to date around. And I walked Barbara off to class, asked her for a date. She worked me in in a couple of weeks, and we went on and dated. We got pinned after our sophomore year, got engaged Christmas of our junior year, and got married after our junior year that summer. And she picked the week of the PGA Championship to get married because she knew that I couldn't play in the PGA Championship as an amateur. And so we did that. But Barbara's been unbelievable. Barbara's a very smart gal. She was very athletic. She knew that I needed support. And she really good about making sure that happened. And so she did that for about 40 years. And then about 17 years ago, the Honda tournament moved to the Palm Beach area. And they came to me and asked if there's any children's charities in Palm Beach they could support. And I looked at Barbara and I said, do you want to go for it? And she says, absolutely. So that's when we formed our foundation. So we formed our foundation. We've been the main recipient of benefits from the Honda. And then we have a lot of other events that we use. We've raised a lot of money for kids. Then we made a relationship with Miami Children's Hospital, which is now Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami, the Nicholas Children's Healthcare System. And we have one main hospital in Miami. And we have 20 outpatient clinics up and down the east and west coast of Florida. And last year, I believe we saw kids from every state in the union and 119 countries. We're pretty global. And I want to tell you, it changed my life totally. After I got done basically playing golf, I was looking for things to do. And Barbara started doing this and I got interested in it. And as I said, it's my turn to support her. And so for the last 17 years, I've had an absolute blast. I don't want to run a hospital, but I don't mind going out and walking into somebody's office and asking them for a lot of money because I know what it does. It really helps a lot of kids. That's really tremendous. You and Barbara have been married 61 years, and for a fair amount of that time, you were out competing in golf. What's your advice on maintaining a long, successful marriage? First of all, we always look at marriage as being about 95% give and 5% take on both sides. Barbara and I have always taken that philosophy. And, you know, I've always looked at my career as being secondary to my family. I always, I always had family first, golf second, business-related things third. We have five kids, 22 grandkids. We now have two great-grandchildren and a third one on the way. And so we got a big family, and we love it. I made a vow to Barbara when I turned pro that I'd 
never be away for more than two weeks. And I never was. I never broke that. But if I was away for two weeks, I would tell you on the weekend of the first tournament, she'd usually show up with maybe two in diapers, travel on a commercial airplane, fly across the country to spend the weekend with me. She made a huge effort to make sure that her kids knew their father. And I know my kids. My kids all know me. Four of the five live here in the Palm Beach area. One lives in Atlanta, but his business is here in Palm Beach. So I see all our grandkids a lot. Over Christmas holidays, we had five different Christmases, one for each family on a different day or night. We have a great time as a family. That's always been by far the most important thing to me. Golf is a game. It's a game that's given me everything. And, you know, the foundation and the things I do would never have happened if I hadn't made a few four-foot putts. I understand that. We got in a position to be able to help others, and, you know, it's really fun to be able to do so. When you talk about getting in a position to help others, it strikes me that to have been as consistent as you were must have required a level of perseverance that's really remarkable. Well, I think you have to have it. You have to know what you have to do. But I never did it at the expense of my family. And I think that was important. Maybe I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, you got some guys who will hit balls 24-7, and that's all they do is play golf. And I feel sorry for them, frankly. They're missing out so much in life. Could I have won more tournaments? I think I could have won a lot more tournaments. But I think it would have been the expense of my family and the expense of living a balanced life. And I really enjoyed living the balanced life. It's been something that I don't consider myself, and I don't think my friends consider me to be anything other than Jack Nicholas with his five kids and 22 grandkids, and we go out and we play tennis on the weekend, or we'll go boating or go fishing or whatever we do, and I'm just another guy. And I like it that way. I don't want to ever be a special cat. Well, you've sort of, by your achievements, are special, but you're a pretty normal special. I tried to be. You said to me many years ago, that you could learn things in one round of golf with somebody about sort of how to measure who they really were. Oh, golf is unbelievable. You can go spend a lot of time with a guy every place. You take him out on the golf course, you're going to find out their temperament. You're going to find out how you could approach them. You find out so many things about from their mannerisms on the golf course that, you know, when you get back to the office and sit down and talk about business, it then becomes a piece of cake. Well, and you've emphasized a lot the importance of integrity. Oh, boy. If you don't have any integrity, you got nothing. That's sort of the way I feel. I'm sure you've always felt the same way. I think that's exactly right. It's one of the things we tragically don't have enough of in the current culture. We have very little of it. And I think it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem we have today. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. At your peak, when you were really out there, there was sort of a band of brothers with you and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. You must have gotten to know each other very well because you were consistently competing with each other. Somehow there must have been an interesting interplay of the three of you as personalities. It really was interesting because, you know, Arnold would rather be at a party with 300 people he didn't know than with four friends at dinner. I would rather be with four friends at dinner than a party with 300. Gary Player, he'd like both. Gary's the most energetic guy I've ever met. They're both great guys. They're both the two closest friends I've ever had. Arnold was very kind and very generous, but did he like to compete? Woo! He loved competing. I always called him on his birthday, and I called him two weeks before he passed, which was his birthday on September 10th. I called him every year, and... I knew Arnold wasn't doing very well. I said, how are you doing there, AP? He says, I'm doing fantastic. He said, you can't believe how good I feel. I said, I'm thinking, I'm going out and start playing some more golf. And I said, I can get back to golf again now. He was lying to me, something awful. But he wasn't going to give in to me, you know. That's the way he was. He was competitive. And I love that. Gary Player plays golf six days a week now. If they did handicaps, Gary Player averages about 70. Gary Player plus two or three handicaps. I mean, he's unbelievable, 86 years old. I played golf twice last year. I have no interest whatsoever in playing golf. I'm terrible, but that's okay. I played my golf. 
But, you know, we've all had different personalities, but our wives became very close friends. Winnie Palmer and Vivian Player and Barbara became like three amigos. And they just spent a lot of time together. They got to know each other. They traded off thoughts. I mean, Barbara would ask Winnie, she'd say, Winnie, how did you handle Arnold when you got mad at him? She said, oh boy, she says, he was tough when I got it. Sometimes he'd come home from a tournament and I'd want to just beat him over the head with something. But I wouldn't say anything because maybe it was like Tuesday or Wednesday and I didn't want to bother his game for the weekend. And she said, but then when the weekend came along and the tournament was over, I forgot what I was mad about. <laughs> so she handled that way. So Barbara handled me a little bit that way. Vivian was very soft-spoken. I remember one time Gary had kids around a lot and he found a driver that he really liked. And he says, boy, I tell you one thing. He says, if I had to choose between this and my wife, I said, you know, I sure miss Vivian. Well, anyway, Gary got home in South Africa. He got there. First night he got went to bed. And there was a golf club wrapped up in a negligee. <laughs> Vivian, nowhere to be found. We all passed those stories around. We all had fun. If one of us shot a bad round, we couldn't wait to get to the locker room to sit next to the other guy's locker. And we say, 75 today, Arn, huh? Where did you get all your birdies? You know, we could start kidding him and we'd start laughing because Gary and I probably shot 68 or 9. But then what we do, we'd shake hands, we finish the round and says, let's go have dinner. Where are we going tonight? We spent a lot of time together, enjoyed it. We traveled together. We did all kinds of things together. And we all became great friends. And, you know, unfortunately, Arnold's passed. But Gary and I, good gracious, we see each other. You know, he's in South Africa right now, but we see each other three or four times a week. That's great. Well, now, I'm curious, you know, Palmer preceded you a little bit in fame. He's already emerging. And Palmer had this knack of surging at the very end. He'd sort of charge. Yeah, that was his mode. I've always been curious about that because I also see it with some football teams that, you know, they go along, they go along, they go along, and then all of a sudden there'll be this burst. And Palmer sort of had this knack of coming along at the very end when it looked like he was almost out of it. And then suddenly he just began eating up the rest of the field. My sense was that you had a much steadier style. Arnold played to the crowd, and he loved being around the crowd. And when he hit it off in the trees, and then he hit a shot out of the trees, hit a little low slice and run it up on the green, and the people would go wild. That just charged him up. So when he got near the end of a tournament, if he made a birdie, all of a sudden the people got very excited, and he just went with the crowd. I couldn't do that. If I did that, I'd lose my focus and couldn't get back to it. So I had to keep a little bit more of an even keel. I think Gary Player, he acted like he was getting charged, but I think Gary needed to pull himself back a little bit because Gary sometimes got too excited and couldn't play. We were all different, and that's what life's all about. But we all loved being able to compete. Arnold was 10 years older than I am. Gary's four and a half years older than I am. Arnold came first, and Gary and Arnold competed together. And then I joined them, and I was the third one of the crowd. It's interesting because each of you are successful, but each of you is very different. Very different. I'm curious, where did the Golden Bear come from as a nickname? Well, just before I turned pro, Mark McCormick, who represented me to start with from IMG, went to Australia, and a fellow named Don Lawrence with the Melbourne Age wrote an article about me. He called me a cuddly golden bear in the article. Now, I was big and blonde at the time, and I was a pretty big guy, and but not by today's standards, obviously, but I was then. But anyway, so the first contract I had was a shirt contract. And we were looking for an emblem. 
And we looked through all kinds of things, college nicknames, this and that. And the high school I went to was the Upper Arlington Golden Bears. And the article called the Golden Bear, I said, you know, I've been a Golden Bear all my life. Why not just stay one? And so I just picked up the Golden Bear, and that's what I used. And it serviced me very well. Well, it did. It's a great definer. I'm also curious, you're not only a great athlete, obviously, but you also studied it. I mean, my impression was as often as you'd played Augusta, you would still go back a week early and just sort of renew your acquaintance with the course. There's no excuse for not being properly prepared. I always felt that even though I played Augusta, the course is different every year. The fairway grass is a little bit different. The green's a little bit different. The bunker sand's a little bit different. They make a few odd changes here and there. And I always wanted to make sure that when the tournament started, I had all those changes, all those little quirks out of the way. And same as the U.S. Open. I mean, how deep is the rough? How hard are the greens? How fast are the greens? How narrow are the fairways? I went ahead of time and made sure I got all that out of the way. Now, most of the guys would come in on Monday or Tuesday of the tournament. And when Thursday rolled around, they were still trying to figure out how to play the golf course. Well, I did all that the week ahead of time. And once I got it out of the way a week ahead of time, when I got to the tournament, all I had to do was play golf because the other part was solid in my head and I wasn't going to forget it. And so I think that helped me tremendously in major championships. Obviously, it was amazing. Now, in some ways, I think your most remarkable win was the 86 Masters. You were 46 years old. I think a lot of people thought it was nice you were playing, but you really weren't going to compete. And you were actually like one over par and six shots out of the lead. This is a little bit like Arnold Palmer. I mean, you suddenly went from a tie for ninth place and boom, you shot a 30 on the back nine. What came together? How did that happen? Well, it sort of started early in the year at McGregor, which I owned at the time, made this big putter. It was about, oh, I don't know, it was six or seven inches long, maybe eight inches. And the ugliest looking thing you've ever seen. And I struggled with it to start with, but they kept telling me how well the ball would putt. But finally, by the time I got to the Masters, I started putting the ball pretty well. I wasn't hitting the ball that great, but by the week ahead of time, I started out and shot 74, which wasn't much. Then I shot 71. Then I shot 69. And I started hitting the ball pretty well, but I wasn't putting. Then when I shot 69, I started putting. Then I got to the last round, and I had eight guys in front of me. I was in ninth place, and I was only four shots behind. And I didn't think that was a big deal. I've overcome that before. And my son, Steve, called me. He was working the Hattiesburg tournament for a company. And he says, what do you think, Pops? And I says, Steve, I says, I think 66 will tie, 65 will win. He says, exact number I got in mind, go shoot it. I said, Okay. And my son was on the bag, Jackie. My mother and my sister came to the Masters. First time they come to the Masters since 1959, 27 years in between. And a lot of things happened. And I started, I got excited about being in contention. I got up on Sunday morning. I start running through my wardrobe. And I ran across a yellow shirt. And I looked at the yellow shirt and I said, Barbara, I said, what do you think? Craig would think of this. She says, I, Craig, would like it. Craig Smith was a young boy who I developed a relationship with. He was a son of our minister at home, and he developed Ewing sarcoma and passed away in 1971 at the age of 13. I called him one day, and he says, you know why you won today, don't you? I said, 
well, how's that, Greg? And he says, I wore my lucky yellow shirt. So if he can wear a yellow shirt for me. I can wear a yellow shirt for him. So I never said much about that story, but I wore a yellow shirt quite often on Sunday for him. And so 15 years had passed and I pulled the yellow shirt out. So that was another thing that I got there and Barb said, go for it. So I wore the yellow shirt. I had a lot of things happening that day. And I started out and I really played the front nine, sort of ugh, not very good. I was even par going to the ninth hole and I had about a 12 footer at the ninth hole. And I got up over the ball and a big roar went up at the eighth hole and Bias Terrace had hold a wedge shot for Eagle and he was leading the tournament. And then before I could get back over again, Tom Kite hit a shot and he hold a wedge too and also big roar, another Eagle. And so it sort of relaxed me. And I turned to the gallery around me and I said, well, if they can make that kind of noise up there, let's see if we can make some noise here. I knocked the putt in, the crowd erupted. And then I just started, I hold a 25-footer, a 25-footer, and I just kept making birdies and shot that 30 on the back nine. And so, and the funny thing was, it wasn't that I was ready to do that. I wasn't that far out of being competitive that I didn't remember how to play. I remembered how to play the back nine. I remembered how to compete. I remembered how to finish. And so that's what I did. And it was exciting. It was probably, obviously, the most fun nine holes I've ever played. That's wild. I'm curious, you mentioned sinking a series of 25-footers. Did you find that there were periods when it all just clicked and you could sink a putt from amazing distances, and then there were periods when you were going to come up slightly short? Well, always that way. I mean, you know, I wouldn't make as many putts early in the tournament, then all of a sudden the last nine holes I made everything I looked at. The last round of tournament golf I played was at St. Andrews in 2005. And I wanted to make the cut very bad. I didn't want to finish my career on a Friday. And I shot 72 the first round. And it looked like 144 was going to make the cut. I was all around the hole all day. Couldn't make a putt to save my life. And finally, I bogeyed 17. That put me two over par for the tournament. I knew I wasn't going to make the cut. And the 18th hole, I had 12 feet by the hole, 13 feet. And I knew that since the tournament was over, I was going to make that putt. I said, it didn't make any difference where I hit the putt. The hole would move and get in my way. And it did. I made the putt. But I mean, you know, it's funny how you can't make things happen. And all of a sudden, they just happen. And I ended my career with a birdie. And I started my major championship career with a birdie at Inverness in Toledo in 1957, when I was 17 years old in the U.S. Open. So I started and ended with a birdie. Pretty good symmetry and a pretty good framing to your career. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining today. You're not just one of the most extraordinary golfers, but you're a remarkably good person. And you and Barbara are doing great things with the Nicholas Children's Healthcare Foundation. And so we're going to link both to Nicholas Design and to the Nicholas Children's Healthcare Foundation on our show page. And I want to really thank you for taking time to share these insights from a lifetime of extraordinary achievement. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. I've always enjoyed being with you and talking with you through the years. I don't think I've ever walked away from you not learning something. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I do. You've had great wisdom and you've handled your life well. And every time you come on television, we never change the channel. Well, listen, tell Barbara we said hi. And Clist and I wish you a wonderful year and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you to my guest, Jack Nicholas. You can learn more about Nicholas Design and Nicholas Children's Healthcare Foundation on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.